BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome in to another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham, joined as always by Ethan Skolnick. Coming up later in the week, we'll be joined by George Sedano to talk some L.A.-Miami comparisons, particularly as it relates to the Lakers and the Heat in recent years, so that'll be fun. Right now, though, we're going to do some Miami Dolphins. We are nearing free agency, and as a result, we want to sort of dig into the Mike Tannenbaum era in Miami. Now, he joined the Miami Dolphins in January of 2015 so he's been in charge of Dolphins personnel moves for three full off seasons and that I feel like is enough time to go and analyze what he's done and Ethan we we, we had our kind of juices and I know that that's your nickname but we, we kind of had our juices flowing based off of a tweet that we saw and and, and some criticism that's now coming Mike Tannenbaum's way yeah uh, a tweet from uh, somebody we follow pretty religiously here because he does a really good job of following the Dolphins in the NFL. Chris Kaufman, uh, you can follow him at CK Parrot. And his tweet that came in this week was, one consistent systematic problem Miami has displayed under Mike Tannenbaum is confirmation bias for acquiries, e.g. big extensions based on scant evidence, juxtaposed with harsh skepticism and budgeting for guys that were drafted, developed, and had been in Miami for a while. And then he goes on to to name some of those players. And, and this comes up as we're still sort of waiting to see what happens with Jarvis Landry. Now, you and I did a pod uh, about three or four weeks ago uh, about Jarvis Landry and what we thought he should get paid. It does appear that he's going to get closer to what you said than what I said, because I, I said I thought he was a 10 to $12 million player. You had him closer to the $14 million figure, and the Dolphins have franchised him at $16 million, and we'll have to see now if another team makes a trade for him and gives him a long-term contract. But that, that's kind of the, the impetus for this pod because, you know, the Jarvis Landry move can't be looked at in isolation. It has to be looked at in combination with some of the other things that the Dolphins have done under Tannenbaum. Obviously, Chris Greer has played a role in this. Adam Gase has played a role in this. But the Dolphins have, you know, really sort of spun their wheels here in terms of personnel in the past few years and even though they did get a 10 and 6 season out of it slip back to 6 and 10 and when you look at the cap situation going forward as well as the roster that the Dolphins currently have it doesn't seem to justify the high valuation of the contracts on the roster and and that's the thing that I think we're going to dig into a little bit today as we usually do we break it down into five different areas uh we'll start first with the overall 
strategy, the overall kind of philosophy. And I think this is something that some Dolphins fans were concerned with. I know you and I have talked about this a bunch. Mike Tannenbaum's kind of propensity to mortgage the future for the now and to take big swings. And so he comes in, and the first thing he does is the Indomitian Sioux contract. And to me, when you look at the current situation, when it surrounds the Dolphins, they're one of the few teams, like, in, in some respects, I think the NFL shouldn't even have a salary cap because at this point this number is so high that there really is sort of nothing that is keeping teams competitively balanced. It's just sort of this arbitrary figure that's $180 million. That is a massive amount of money, and so why even have one? And yet the Dolphins right now are over the salary cap. They're, I think, one of three teams in the NFL that are over the salary cap. That's $180 million, and they're over it right now. So they've kind of put themselves in this cap hell and really haven't given themselves an out for this season. Now, next season, they can kind of, you know, say, we'll, we'll offload these players and we won't have a ton to pay. But the Dolphins keep kicking the can down the road when it comes to paying off their big money players. And I think from an overall point of view, they've really taken these big swings with guys I'm not sure they should be taking big swings with. What do you make of Mike Tannenbaum's overall strategy is with managing this team? Yeah, that's been the issue. I think the biggest issue of all has been sort of the the lack of a coherent strategy in the modern NFL and the way that, that the good teams have been built. And this was one of the criticisms of Tannenbaum when he first came down here because there was a lot of feeling in New York with the Jets that he did this, that he spent a lot of money on free agent players. And at the end of that thing, they really, you know, they had, I believe, an AFC championship appearance to show for it too, right, And you know, with Mark Sanchez. But they weren't in very good shape towards the end and when he left. And that was one of the fears here with the Dolphins was that he was going to spend a lot of money and the Dolphins roster ultimately was not going to look so good when you had to start cutting loose some of these players. Now, my issue with the Indomitian Sioux move from the very beginning was not whether Indomitian Sioux was a great player. Clearly, he's a great player. But what we've seen here over the past three years and and even you know when Indomitian Sioux has been rated so highly in in pro football focus and the other metric services it doesn't seem to have that big an impact on the defense as a whole so when you look at the allocation of resources allocation of money to the positions that Tannenbaum has allocated it to it doesn't make a ton of sense in the modern NFL you look at the four positions of most impact it's quarterback it's pass rusher it's corner and it's left tackle. Those are the four positions that typically get the most money. And so from the very beginning, paying a defensive tackle that much money, especially in an NFL which has sort of trended towards the pass and the short passing game in recent years, just never made a ton of sense. It's very difficult to get pressure up the middle and make an impact that way when quarterbacks are getting rid of the ball on three-step drops and it's out. And it's very difficult also when teams, a lot of teams are passing to win rather than running to win these days. And so these were things that the Indomitian Sioux signing really didn't Address And so you, you have to start there. The other thing, Chris, I think when you look at the totality of it, you look at the numbers, and I know these numbers are going to change because players are going to be released and, and all the rest, and, and contracts will be restructured. But a- according to Spotrack, right now, the Dolphins have their top 51 contracts on the roster are, are worth $185 million. The Patriots are worth $170 million. So you look at that difference and you say, how is it possible that that roster that the Patriots have put together 
has less in active contracts for its top 51 players than the Dolphins does. And I think that speaks right there to sort of allocation of resources. I know it helps when a guy like Tom Brady takes less money, but it speaks to allocation of resources and, and the idea that the Dolphins have just spent too much of the wrong money on too many of the wrong guys. I want to hit the Sue point first, though, because it's almost kind of the, the way that you described it. It's almost like paying a lot of money to an NBA center right now because I, I hadn't really considered the point that more teams are passing and they're passing quicker, that having a dominant defensive tackle might be of less value in the modern game. Now, we've seen Aaron Donald kind of you know be a really important piece to what the Rams do, but like you said, what Sue has done so far, despite being really good at his job, and, and, and I, I don't think anyone who watches film would dispute that Ndamukong Sue is really good at his job, you just haven't seen it permeate throughout the defense. And I think it does take... 11 quality players rather than one player kind of carrying multiple mediocre units of players. So I think we see the Dolphins have mediocre linebackers and a secondary that is either young and poor or, you know, taking flyers on guys who who were never worth taking a flyer on. So I think that Sue isn't the panacea for fixing the entirety of a defense. And you mentioned the fact that they were near the bottom of the league in rush defense. They were also near the bottom of the league this year in sacks. They only had 30 over the course of the season. That was tied for 26th in the league. And so that lack of pass rush doesn't make sense when that's what Ndamukong Sue would theoretically help you with. So I, I just don't think that he has been the singular solution to all these problems that I think Mike Tannenbaum might have anticipated three years ago. Yeah, and, and to pay a guy who doesn't really, you know, fit where sort of the game is going, to pay a guy at that position, but also someone who is not going to dramatically affect your team from a leadership perspective either. And I know sometimes we make too much of that intangible, but it, first thing, it's difficult to do it from that position. And second thing, it doesn't seem to be in Dominican Sue's personality, right? I mean, he's a bright guy. But he's never been sort of an outspoken leader. He's not the type of player that we've typically seen guys rally behind. So you didn't even get sort of that one plus one equals three effect with him. So, I mean, it, it was – look, it was a splashy signing at the time because he was a name guy. The defense in Detroit was excellent the last year that Sue was there. I believe they were number one against the run that year. But it just, again, has not translated – in Miami, and because of all the resources that have been put towards him, they've had to cut resources in other places. And look, they've tried to get by, and I know we're going to get into to this, uh, the Timmons signing here in a, in a couple of minutes, but they've tried to get by at the linebacker spot by kind of patching it together. That hasn't worked all that well. In the secondary as well, you know, with the exception of the Rashad Jones resigning, where they did pay him a considerable amount of money, they've tried to sort of patch it together at the safety spot. You know, even signing a safety last year in McDonald, who they knew couldn't play the first eight weeks, and then giving him an extension. So I just think from a strategy perspective, you know, the Sue signing kind of got this, and not Sue's fault, but I just think it got this whole thing off on the wrong foot. And again, it, it raises the question of what was the general direction here? What is the strategy? And, you know, I put the question out on Twitter today for people to sort of evaluate Tannenbaum's tenure. And, you know, not surprisingly now, coming off a 6-10 and 10 season, all the responses were negative, and most of them had to do 
with the cap situation that Tannenbaum has put this team in without having sort of the the talent on the roster to justify it. Let's get to the quarterback position because I think that sort of falls under the heading of overall viewpoint as it relates to running a team. Now, he inherits Tannehill. They give him an extension, which I think right now looks like a pretty decent extension because they can get off of him after this season if this year doesn't work out. So it really was kind of one of these kind of modern NFL extensions of it's really a two-year deal with the ability to go back to the negotiating table after that point. There hasn't been any other movement uh, you can criticize sort of on the margins in terms of not having gone after another young quarterback. They did take Brandon Dowdy with a seventh-round pick, but they've really basically stuck with Tannehill and more. Do you have any quibbles with the quarterbacking situation? Well, I don't with Tannehill's extension. I, I think when you look at that, at the time I thought it was reasonable, and I think when you look at what some guys are getting paid now going forward, it's more reasonable. I guess you could put it side by side with the Bortles contract, and we could evaluate that a little bit in terms of that one. Just or even the Alex signed. Smith one. Alex Smith got $70 million guaranteed. Tannehill didn't get that. And, and look what Cousins is going to get. And, and I think we can make an argument that Cousins uh, may be a little better than Tannehill when Tannehill's healthy, but I don't know that there's a huge, huge difference there because I don't think either you or I consider Cousins to be elite either. So, look, I'm okay with the contract there. I think with the backup quarterback situation, when you look back at that now, although they did get Matt Moore for a reasonable price, they clearly had no belief in Matt Moore. And I do think that the league has changed now where I do you, you have to have belief in your number two quarterback. And, and not having that belief in Matt Moore compelled them to blow that $10 million last year on Jay Cutler. So I think you can say the Tannehill contract is fine. You didn't anticipate that he was going to get hurt. But I think when you look at what they did with the quarterback position as a whole, clearly they were not prepared for the worst-case scenario and I know a lot of teams are not prepared, but again, something just to point out there that they had to go spend the money on Cutler. So that's another spot where I'm okay with the starter, but maybe not what they did in terms of depth. All right, let's get to the big free agency sign. So we'll kind of break this. We'll, we'll break free agency down into big and small money signings. You know, when you can't compare, you know, trying to sign Nate Allen to play eight games at safety to, you know, extending Kenny Stills at $10 million a year. To me, those, those are just two different types of signings. And I saw there are people on Twitter who was, oh, well, he made a mistake here and a mistake there. Well, for the most part, they were on guys that Ted Larson, you can't call a mistake because he tore his biceps and you paid him $1 million in the process. So to me, these are different categories. So I think the, the big moves that have been made, if you kind of go year by year, I think they redid Brent Grimes' contract, but he was there already. The big signing in two thousand, the big signings in 2015 were Sue and Jordan Cameron. Uh, they tried to bring in Greg Jennings. I would consider him more in that small money category. The following year, they make the big trade with Kiko Alonso and Byron Maxwell coming in, and the Eagles and the Dolphins swap first round picks. So we'll we'll study that move. And then to me, the ones that are most worth exploring are extending Rashad Jones. Andre Branch, Kenny Stills, and Kiko Alonso. And the reason why I think those are massive, Ethan, is because they have massive uh, you know, ramifications heading into this season in terms of you cannot get off of these players and their salaries. They're going to be making, in, in the category of the top seven players on your roster, and I'm not sure, save for Jones, that any of them are really delivering at that level or providing even market value production at those positions. Yeah, and I think we have to evaluate all of these things in totality, and, and let's let's take a look at the Kiko Alonso one first, because I think this is a move that we've kind of changed our view of it a few times in terms of whether it was a good move or a bad move. When the move was first made, 
in terms of trading for Alonzo and for Byron Maxwell and dropping five spots in the draft. At first, you know, there were a lot of fans who were upset about the move because, you know, why would you trade back five spots? We've been trying to get a top 10 pick for how long, and now we're going to move back. Then when Laramie Tunzel drops to the Dolphins and they end up getting a player that they might have taken at eight anyway, or may have taken even higher if they'd been higher, and you end up with Byron Maxwell becoming a starter and Kiko Alonso playing reasonably well his first year with the Dolphins, that looked like a home run trade. Like, yeah, you that got three players like a- for one. Exactly. It looked like a really smart move. You got the same guy that you would have gotten anyway in the draft, and you end up getting two starters on a 10-win team. I mean, that's even though Byron Maxwell, uh, I guess, was benched late in the season and had the ankle injury, it looked like a, a really good move. But now I think we've got to look at it in terms of how it ended up playing out. So the next year... Tunzel, and I don't, I'm not going to give up on Tunzel at this point, but he didn't develop as a left tackle as was expected in his first season there. So he's going to get another year to prove that he can be the franchise guy at that position that they expected when they took him. But the other two guys, Byron Maxwell's no longer with the team, got beaten out pretty clearly, you know, first by Tony Lippett, you know, and then by the, you know, the two young guys that they drafted. So he ends up getting pushed out. So he's no longer part of the equation anymore. And Kiko Alonso has a really bad year. And not only does he have a bad year, but it comes after the Dolphins, Tannenbaum, rewarded him with a big contract, which, as you said, is a problem because they can't even cut him loose this year if they want to because the cap number goes up more if they cut him than if they keep him. So I think we're back to thinking that they didn't really get great value out of that because they compounded the trade by the extension. So that one doesn't look great. The Kenny Stills move, look, the trade itself, you know, giving up a third-round pick in Danelle Ellerby for him, I think that still stands up pretty well. Stills is obviously a guy who a couple of the quarterbacks on the team have become comfortable with. You give him the extension. I don't have a problem with what he's making going forward. You know, you look at the numbers, it was a 9.7. 9.7 a lot, though, to give to basically in, well, Devontae Parker was meant to be your first receiver, so that hasn't quite worked out. So uh, mm-hmm. he, he would be your second receiver. I just think, again, you, you, you take the Patriots example earlier. Uh, to me, the major difference between the Dolphins and the Patriots is that the three players who were talking, let's take Rashad Jones out of the conversation. Maybe the Patriots keep Rashad Jones, even at the pretty exorbitant amount of money, um, you know, amount of money that he's making. The Patriots let Andre Branch go, they let Kenny Stills go, and they let Kiko Alonso go. They are not paying market value for those players. I, they, if you want to go and get your $20 million guaranteed, go get it somewhere else. You're not going to get it here. And that's sort of the, the major talking point is that they're paying Andre Branch at a level to be a top-level player. Kenny Stills to be a top-level player. They're nice players. When they have good seasons, they're, they're decent contributors, but they're not top seven guys in your roster, I don't think. Let's go to the Patriots here for a second. You mentioned Kenny, you know, Kenny Stills, what he's making. Brandon Cooks will make less than Kenny Stills next season. You know, that mm-hmm. was a trade. Obviously, the Patriots had to give up. I think it was a second in that deal. But they, they end up with Brandon Cooks at that price. And they have Julian Edelman at $4.7 million. So, so they're, two, you know, provided that Edelman comes back healthy, they're two top receivers next year. And then even throwing Chris Hogan, you know, there at 3.3, you're looking at, at $16 million for their top three wideouts which is basically what the Dolphins just had to commit to Jarvis Landry for next season. And then the Dolphins have the additional 
nine million for stills. You mentioned Devontae Parker, and we're we're gonna touch on that when we get to the draft here. But but that again is part of the problem. The Dolphins don't have a ton of guys who are outperforming their contracts. Yeah. If Devontae Parker is is outperforming his contract, which is essentially the same as Chris Hogan's, then this would look a little bit different. But that that's the problem. When you don't have outperformers, then the big contracts that you do give out, you cannot afford those players to underperform. And the Dolphins, you know, have too many of those. Now you mentioned Branch. I mean that's another issue here and you know that gets into that point that we sort of started the podcast with that Chris Kaufman made where you know the players that the Dolphins have brought in they've tended to reward pretty quickly whereas they've made their own players work for it and often let those players walk and you know not just Kiko Alonso you know having a good year but but look Branch had five sacks in his first season and he played pretty well I would say he was probably a B to B plus player in his first season as a Dolphin but to go out and then commit money to him at that position when you ultimately ended up drafting a defensive end in the first round and you were bringing back Cameron Wake. And I know Cameron's up in years, but you still thought you were going to get another year or two of productivity from him. And you were also signing William Hayes there for at least the next year. I don't know that it made a ton of sense to give Branch that contract. And that's even without the benefit of hindsight, which is that Branch played hurt last year. It didn't have... A very good season. So I think you have to throw that move in there. And then I think the other one that we need to talk about a little bit is that Tannenbaum has, has repeatedly struck out at the tight end position. And, sure. you know, these, uh, whether it was Cameron or, or whether it was Julius Thomas, neither of those two moves have worked out. And then, as you know, we, we talked about a little earlier, Timmons, and I know they can get out of his contract right now. I think you and I have a little bit of a different perspective on this one. But clearly this was, uh, to me, another issue where the Dolphins went to the Steeler well again. And we've seen that Steeler players, for whatever reason, outside of that system, that program or whatever, once they hit a certain age are just not that productive in other places. And Timmons had a very bad year last year. I don't know that you could have anticipated what ended up happening. I mean, Lawrence Timmons is one of the most reliable NFL players over the course of his tenure with Pittsburgh. Now, you do mention the fact that he leaves, and I think he very clearly wanted to go back, which kind of makes you wonder what was happening in Miami that he missed Pittsburgh so much. But either way, the idea that, you know, when the hurricane stuff was going on, he was in Pittsburgh taking in practice for some reason, and then all of a sudden, the day before the opening game of the season, they can't find him and he doesn't play, and, you know, they got, they got to answer Lawrence Timmons' questions for a month. That, for me, is one that I don't know if I would necessarily blame that on the Dolphins or you know a, a, a lack of scouting when it comes to his personality or whatever. I, I, I don't know that anyone could have anticipated what ended up happening there. But I to me, the one, and I, I don't mean to be harsh, but the Andre Branch one it never made sense to me. It just didn't. When you look at... Even considering the fact that they ended up adding more resources at the end position with Harris and with William Hayes... I just think that Mike Tannenbaum tends to front load these kinds of contracts, right? So, may, or I'm sorry, to backload these kinds of contracts. So, it doesn't pay a ton in the first year and then pays more as it goes on. But with Branch, I mean, he's going to be making $10 million next year. At least that's his hit against the cap. And he's being paid like a top five player on the team. Before Jarvis Landry was, you know, got the, got the franchise tag, he was paid like a top four player on this team. Andre Branch is at best your third best defensive end. And they brought him in as this kind of journeyman player who had kind of gone around and they gave him like a Miami Heat kind of contract, like a <laughs> yeah. Deion Waiters, James Johnson kind of contract, a Tyler Johnson kind of contract. And now, yes, they only have to deal with this for one more year. They can't cut him now and next year it'll be cheap to get rid of him. And fine, you gave away two years of Andre 
great branch. But still, if you're trying to build quality organizations, you can't give away two years because you gave away this bad contract. And to me, between Kiko Alonso, Kenny Stills, and Andre Branch, they just gave away $30 million. $30 million is a fifth-year salary cap. And while at times it does feel like an infinite amount of money, that's still a fifth-year salary cap to players who aren't going to produce at that level they aren't going to be your number one receiver they're not going to give you 12 sacks they're not going to you know uh shut down running backs and tight and tight this show is sponsored by better help what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day go for a run take a nap maybe check the stats of the latest miami heat game i've got a better idea a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time the question is time for what if time was unlimited How would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc in the past game and and help him being a stout run defense kiko alonzo kenny stills and andre branch are not delivering those levels of performances and so, yeah, we can go on about, you know, the Timmons signing or, you know, the, the lack of the tight end position production. And I think those are legitimate stains. To me, last offseason, you know, was kind of it was under the radar at the time because they're just bringing, they're just bringing players back. And you don't really think of those as big moves. But now in retrospect, as you're kind of staring down the barrel of having a lot of holes in terms of things you need to do in this offseason with no money to do it. The reason why they don't have any money to do it is because of those three contracts they gave last season. And yeah, it might be fine start of 2019, but I just think that heading into this season, I don't know how they improve unless those guys improve. Let's get, I think you were smart to sort of break this into two different sections here. So we touched on the big free agent moves, the small free agent moves here. And and I know that you take exception, Chris, to kind of the criticism of Tannenbaum for maybe not hitting 
on, you know, a, a particular player. And I, and I understand that because you're not going to hit on all your small moves. I mean, we see guys you're brought in just to compete in camp to see how a guy looks in a certain situation. You don't commit a lot of money to that particular player. So I get all of that. But I guess my question is what we see with the, the really good organizations is that they find some under the radar players, right? I'm looking at the Dolphin roster right now, Chris, and I just, I don't see a bunch of those guys that's sort of un you know the guy that the dolphins didn't draft maybe brought in from somewhere else and that player you know performed well i mean i guess you know william hayes was sort of a low budget free agent signing last year they got one productive year out of him but beyond that who is that player on this team because i again i'm going through their entire roster and i i just don't see the someone who has sort of outperformed what the expectations were well, oddly enough, it's a player just probably I, I think is one of the worst contracts they've handed out recently, Andre Branch, uh, because mm-hmm. that's what Andre Branch was. He was a low-level free agent signing that they brought in, they liked, and then they gave him a big-money contract. But now on the big-money contract, it looks a lot different than when you gave him uh, you know, less than $2 million. So let's go through the years of Tannenbaum. We start in 2015. They bring in Bryce McCain. That cost him $2 million against the cap. Kelvin Shepard. Jordan Cameron, which didn't work out, and you could have seen coming, but they took a flyer. And I agree. I think individually, I don't think these necessarily are are massive deals or deals that I think are of huge consequence. But collectively, you should be hitting on at least two or three of these because the best teams do. The best teams, they try and and take a player for a year and and turn him into at least a decent contributor. I don't think the Dolphins have done a ton of that. Then you go to Mario Williams in 2016 to try and bring him in. That didn't work. Andre Branch, so his uh, Andre Branch's first figure was two point five million dollars. At that money, that's a good signing. The production you got for two and a half million was good. It's not good at ten. Jermon Bushrod at right guard has been your starter for two years, but some would argue one of the worst starters in in the entirety of the NFL at that position. So you know, depending on your perspective, at least you got a starter, but not really a, a tremendously good one. Then uh, then you look at. Craig Urbick, who's another one of these kind of reserve offensive linemen who, you know, never took a job or never, you know, stepped up. Then you go to 2017, Anthony Fasano, they bring in TJ McDonald. They bring, I think TJ McDonald towards the end of the season, that signing feels okay because you're going to pair him with, with, with Rashad Jones next year and hopefully, you know, him playing 16 games, that'll look better. Uh, they traded for Stefan Anthony in the middle of the season when they had a linebacking crisis. Okay player, not anyone that, you know, you're writing home about. Alteron Werner, who they brought in on on $900,000. So these are, you know, not great on the, you know, for the most part. These aren't the kind of depth signings that we're talking about. So when you're talking about a team that has no depth, these are the signings that provide you the depth. You find players between, let's say, on a 53-man roster, 35 and 50, that when, you know, all of a sudden you have injuries, who are you plucking and playing? And I think we saw this year when Lawrence Timmons goes AWOL and when Raekwon McMillan tears his ACL in preseason, they didn't have anything to go to at linebacker. When they decide that Byron Maxwell is no longer for them, they go to Cordray Tankersley and to mixed results. So I think when we're talking about depth signings over the course of the three years, they just haven't found enough. And, and I, I do think that's a legitimate criticism in the aggregate, if not in the individual, because if I said you're trying to go for the Pro Bowl year of Jordan Cameron, but it doesn't work out, was it worth the flyer? Yeah, probably. But you, in the end, you're left with nothing at the tight end position. Well, I, again, I don't want to do this to Dolphin fans, 
Falcons, but I think we have to look at the Patriots. <laughs> is there another? I mean, is, there, is there another great team we can look look at, like uh, the Eagles I, or something? Well, I I think you probably would find this on Philadelphia too, and yeah. and 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 some of the others. But I mean, there's just no Deion Lewis on this roster, right? Like there's, and I know the Patriots are not going to, most likely not going to pay Deion Lewis this offseason. But think of how many low budget, just at just at one position, at the running back position. That, that the Patriots have churned through? How many low-budget receivers that the Patriots have churned through? How many low-budget linebackers and even offensive linemen that they've gone through? And you look, you're not going to find a gem you know, every time. You may not even find a couple of gems every offseason, but you've got to occasionally hit on somebody that you want to be a long-term part of your roster. And you mentioned Branch, and you know it, it's another of those moves like the Alonzo trade that that looked good at the time, and then the Dolphins sort of overcompensated and, and, and turned it from a good move into a bad move. But th- there just is not that player on this roster. Now we'll see what you know Stephon Anthony becomes this this season. You know maybe with the, some additional playing time, maybe he emerges as something. But I just I look at this roster and I just don't see players that they've sort of surfaced out of nowhere. And and again, the Dolphins have done that over the years. I mean, I, I go I'll go all the way back to Jimmy Johnson's era. And, you know, finding a guy in Mark Dixon who ended up becoming a five or six year starter on the offensive line. And that was a player that they found out of the CFL. I mean, I know they had to pay a little bit for him, but I mean, Cameron Wake was a CFL player that the Dolphins, you know, they had to outbid a couple of other teams, but he wasn't exorbitant in terms of his salary. And look what Cameron Wake became. Uh, That player is not on this roster. That player does not appear to have entered the Dolphins organization during Tannenbaum's tenure. And like you said, if you're going to spend big money on free agents, at least when you have the money to do so, that's going to leave you with less money to fill out these other spots. You're going to have to find a couple of those guys, and they they just haven't found those guys. And that that speaks to an overall weakness in terms of of scouting. And you're never going to be able to sustain an organization because then when the other players get to a point where you don't want to pay them anymore, you don't have somebody else to step in and take that spot. So I, I, to me, this is, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to criticize one move here or there, but they have to get some production, whether it's on special teams or in other areas, out of players who, you know, they sign for small contracts. Uh, and, and so far they have not done that. All right, let's get to uh, what is the lifeblood for any organization, the draft, our fourth reason that Mike Tannenbaum's uh, tenure needs to be scrutinized since he's been with the Dolphins. You know, just to go through some of this draft stuff, Chris, you know, let's go back to 2015. And and I know that there's been changing players here in terms of who's been making the decisions and how much power and authority they have and how involved Chris Greer is and and all the rest and and how involved Adam Gase is. So we have to take some of that into account. But but Tannenbaum is, is known as the, you know, the lead personnel person in the Dolphins organization. So ultimately, the buck stops with him. So, so let's go through a little bit of this since 2015 and, and some of the picks and, and sort of what they've done to this point. Devontae Parker at 14 overall, I would have to say, has not met expectations. Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, 139 catches and eight touchdowns in three seasons it shows the potential but has not stayed healthy consistently also last year some issues in terms of him coming back for the ball fighting for the ball being a good target for his quarterback and this has now persisted now with three different quarterbacks where he's just been inconsistent so I'm not giving up on him yet but 
but has not performed to the level of the then, 14th overall pick. And then you kind of look around him. The one that kind of sticks out in terms of players you could have gotten in that territory didn't end up being a great draft kind of after him, but Melvin Gordon was the next pick who's been a really good running back for the now Los Angeles Chargers. And then Marcus Peters went 18 mm-hmm. to the Kansas City Chiefs, who I, I believe was just recently traded. Yep. Uh, but the Parker pick came up at the time, I think because he had a really good performance. He had really good performances in the ACC, I think, for a team that Miami fans are keeping tabs on so you think oh that's a pretty decent steal at 14 it's been three years now and I think last offseason was kind of the Devonte Parker hype train and there's been some professionalism questions when it comes to the work that he puts in in the offseason how well he's taking care of his body some maturity issues there's been off-field stuff and then the biggest problem is he can't stay healthy and it never seems like he's playing at a, at 100%. And if he's not playing at 100%, he doesn't look like himself. And so I just think three years on, obviously because of the contract, they have one more year to figure this thing out. But I don't think you can say he has a future with the Dolphins as kind of rewarding him on a second contract kind of basis. And when you're the 14th overall pick, you have to be a guy that the team wants to reward uh, with a long-term contract. All right, so the second pick in that draft... Jordan Phillips um, was also sort of seen as a make or break year for him mm-hmm. this past season. I, you know, I thought he performed, you know, reasonably well. I mean, he, so I think at this point, uh, at best, that's an average selection there at that pick. I, I think you could argue that it's a below average selection for, for 52nd overall. They didn't have a third round pick, so they took Jameel Douglas in the fourth round. And again, I, once you get past the third round, I kind of look at this all collectively. So it's it's did you get any value out of your later picks? So they did okay, or better than okay, from the fourth round on, right? Jameel Douglas is no longer here. Bobby McCain, you know, has stepped in as a, you know, as a productive nickel corner. So they, that's pretty good value. That's very good value at the in the fifth round. And Jay Ajayi, whatever you think of his tenure here and the trade and all the rest, clearly outperformed his draft status being a fifth-round pick and, and gaining close to 2,000 yards for the Dolphins, having a Pro Bowl season. Cedric Thompson, uh, no longer with the Dolphins, fifth-round pick. And then Tony Lippitt, who projects in their secondary as, as, you know, maybe he's not a starter this upcoming season, but maybe as your fourth corner. So, uh, Chris, they did reasonably well once they got you know, past uh, their first couple of picks, but it's it's the first couple of picks that I don't know if they'll ever sort of match the expectation level. Yeah, and, and I think when it comes to Ajayi, you got probably, you know, a season and a half, you know, worth of production, and then you flipped him for a fourth-round pick. I'd say that's pretty decent considering that the biggest concern at the time was, you know, would his knees survive any amount of NFL play, much less multiple seasons worth. So Ajayi doing well there. To me, the Jamil Douglas thing is, you know, continuing to compound the problem of offensive line because, again, these things are in the aggregate. Not all of it is Tannenbaum's fault, but when you look at Jamil Douglas, Billy Turner, Dallas Thomas, those are mid-round offensive line picks. None of them worked out. They were shipped out of here as quickly as possible. None of them still on the team. And I think that's why you're looking at an offensive guard problem is because you did allocate resources at that position and then none of it worked out when I think a lot of teams can piece together offensive lines with those middle round picks. And then they ended up allocating a big resource the next year. So going to 2016, 13th overall pick with Laramie Tunsil. I'm still fine with that pick. Again, a player you could have taken higher if you'd you'd had a higher pick. You end up getting him 13th overall. He does project as your starting left tackle but obviously has some improvements that he needs and, and, to make. So, so to me, these come down to two things, right? So they come down to how did you feel in the moment, right? 
And was there anyone that turned out to be decidedly better that went after him? And I think the answer is, in the moment you felt like you're getting a steal because of what happened on draft night with the gas mask and, and the marijuana stuff, but that hasn't proved to be our problem. And then there aren't a ton of players after that we feel like, oh, we missed on that guy. Keanu Neal is the only pro bowler in the first round that's yet to come out of that 2016 draft in the first round. And there just aren't a ton of players you look at and go, oh, well, if we had just gotten that guy, the Dolphins would be in decidedly better position. So I think the Tunsil pick was a good one. And at the very least, uh, you can at least write this year off as it was his rookie year at left tackle. Hopefully he'll kick on this year with some changing in the coaching staff and, and maybe he becomes the kind of promising left tackle that you would have hoped for. The second round, they end up taking Xavier Howard, who didn't look real good early this season. Uh, I think there were a lot of reasonable complaints from fans about his play. Now, looked better later in the year and ended up, you know, even picking off a couple of passes. And so I, I think there's a better feeling about him going into his third season. Kenyon Drake, uh, third round pick. Uh, it looks like, yeah, looks like really good value there, right? And and a guy who fits Gase's system and made people f- feel a little bit better about the Ajayi trade. You know, I, I still think they need to pair someone with him in the backfield. I don't know that he's a guy you want to hand the ball to 25 times. But but obviously, you know, look, third round is a reasonable place to get a starting running back these days, and and I, I think good value. Now, the next pick is, is the one where there's a problem. Yeah, um, that, this has been a disaster. The, the Leonza Carew situation to trade, what was it, three picks to get yeah, him? Yeah, so in- it was Miami's sixth-round pick in 2016 and then third and fourth-round picks in 2017. That's a lot. For a guy who, in a best-case scenario, was going to be, what, a fourth receiver? I mean, once— Well, you know, and it you turns made, out that, made- the, that, the next, that the next guy they picked, their sixth-round pick, Jakeem Grant, has been better and has contributed more over the course of two years than Leonte Carew has. Leonte Carew mm-hmm. has done nothing. No, he hasn't. And if Landry comes back, there's really not much chance of him doing anything in the near future either. So, I mean, that's a busted pick. And, and the, the problem there is giving up the two additional picks— giving up three picks in total to get him and to get 10 receptions out of him in, in his first two seasons. And again, not to even see a real path forward. You mentioned Shaquem Grant. Once they finally found a role for him in the offense, and it took a while, he showed that he can be a productive player for you. So I think there, there's a future for him in Miami as a specialist and as a and maybe as that fourth receiver, you know, sort of a specialist deep threat. So that's worked out. The rest of the guys, you know, Jordan Lucas, Brandon Dowdy, Thomas Duarte, um, you know, no production out of any of those players. I don't have a problem with them taking a quarterback in the seventh round and Brandon Dowdy, you take a flyer on it. So looking at that overall draft, and again, Tannenbaum maybe didn't make all the picks, but he's the guy overseeing everything. Uh, how would you evaluate it? I would say pretty decent. I would say uh, you'd, you'd want to see more out of Larry Mintunsil heading into year three. The Leonte Carew move, as we talked about, was bad, but Kenyon Drake, to me, towards the latter half of last season, or last third of the year, was not just clearly the best running back on the team, he's one of the best running backs in the league. And the production that he showed, again, with an offensive line that does not run block, it was the worst run-blocking offensive line, and very often was making more out of what was given to him, and was breaking tackles, and was eluding tackles, and was creating big plays where there weren't any. And to me... I think when you evaluate this draft, you look at the Patriots game, which, again, was by far the best performance of the season. But when they were competing with the big boys, Jakeem Grant comes up with a massive touchdown in that game. You know, Kenyon Drake over 100 yards rushing and was key in kind of killing the game off. I think 
when when you look at that game and the best of the Dolphins last season, it was those guys. And then you have Xavier Howard, who was your second-round pick the year before, who also made the big contribution. So in your biggest game of the year and your best performance of the year, those guys were the ones that were providing the contributions. So at the very least, it allows you some positivity heading towards the future that those guys can continue to be those pieces. And so I think if you get you know two, maybe three solid starters out of a draft, that's job well done. The 2017 draft, uh, I think it's too early at this stage. Um, there are a couple of positive know. signs, though, in Devon Gottschall and Vincent Taylor starting immediately, uh, immediately defensive tackle. Cordray Tackersley starting kind of from the midway point in the year. Uh, McMillan would have been a starter if not for mm-hmm. an ACL injury. So it does seem like they were going to rely on those guys. But the draft it does appear to be better than free agency. And I know, you know, with Dolphin fans, you know, a lot of it is evaluating what Tannenbaum's done in free agency and some of the work that has been done in the draft that may not pay off until after his tenure. Let's get to the fifth reason that it's worth sort of evaluating where they are in the Mike Tannenbaum era. And that's projecting this thing forward a little bit and, and where this team can go at this stage. So, so we've talked about what players have done up to this point, Chris, how well positioned do you think the dolphins are at this stage to, to become a consistent contender under Mike Tannenbaum? Consistent contender, I'm not sure they're at that stage. To me, where they are well uh, well positioned is to shake the Etch-A-Sketch next year. And I think that's probably where we're heading. I think 2018, they try and ride it out with their current group of guys. But I hope, that the one thing that I hope out of this offseason is that we're not looking at this a year from now and saying they're going to you know be at this again where they're going to be in cap hell and they're not going to be able to figure this out because they're continuing to kick the can down the road. So next year, they can cut Andre Branch for $2 million in, in dead money. They can cut Mike Pouncey for $1 million in cap money. They can cut Kiko Alonso for $3.5 million in dead money. The only big one right now that's on the books is Ndamukong Sue at $13 million in dead cap, and which is why you can kind of staple that onto next year, and then it gets much better in 2020. So he's the only guy that you can't cut next season, and I hope that the Dolphins are in that position with all their players. I'll probably end up keeping Kenny Stills next year because it's $5.5 million compared to a 9.7 cap hit, so you're not saving a ton, but they can still totally revamp their roster next season. So I just hope that they're positioning themselves to go kind of towards rebuild, maybe take a few more big swings in free agency next season and try and, and build on you know more draft classes that produce more promising talent. But I think this year is not going to be a promising year in terms of really doing enough to rebuild the roster. I think next year is the year that they do it. And I would say that probably you either want two things. We talk, we talk about this in the NBA all the time. You want a team that can compete now or a team with flexibility. And the Dolphins have neither this year, but they can the following year. And so I think that, I think, is the overall hope when it comes to the Dolphins. The question for Steve Ross is, do you allow Mike Tannebaum to take this the next step then? Because if they go, and you mentioned it, that they don't have a lot of flexibility this offseason, and they may end up losing guys who at least are recognizable names to the fan base. I mean, if, if Landry goes, there's going to be a lot of fans who are irritated about that, right? And they're going to make their irritation known. The question for me, Chris, is, and you have to do this with every NFL team, it's not quite the same as the NBA where we know where one or two guys can change a franchise his fortunes completely. But in the NFL, you do need to have some blue chip players, guys who are clearly in sort of the top five to top seven at their position in the NFL. And I'm just wondering on this team, who are those guys 
going to be because there aren't a ton of them on the roster right now, right? Rashad Jones qualifies when healthy. I don't know that Cameron Wakes at that level no. anymore. No one on their offensive line currently is. Pouncey doesn't stay healthy enough. You mentioned that Kenyon Drake played as one of the best running backs in the league last year. Can that carry over, and is that sustainable? Because we know that with running backs, that the guy who's the best in the league for a period of time often isn't the next season, that that list of top rushers tends to change. So where are they going to find those players? Is Raquan McMillan coming back from injury going to become one of those players for them? Could Charles Harris develop into that? Is Laramie Tunzel, you know, once now he's got the hang of the left tackle position, does he emerge as that? But th- they're going to have to find some blue chip players on this go- team going forward and players who are not only worthy of their contracts, but outperform their contracts. So I, I look at this roster and I-, I say, even if they have flexibility after next season, To me, this doesn't look like a team that's primed to be a contender in the next three years. All right, thank you for listening. You can always find us on iTunes as well as Stitcher. We're going to put out three podcasts this week. Our next podcast will be with ESPN's George Sedano. We spent a lot of time on Miami radio. We're going to talk about the Heat, the Lakers, L.A., Miami. He's been in both markets. Uh, Some interesting stuff there like, uh, you know, what, what organization will Pat Riley ultimately be associated with? We'll dig into that and more. You can also find our recent podcast we did with Jason Cole, a longtime NFL insider. Jason broke down all the quarterback situations around the NFL, including the Dolphins, but where some of the free agents like Kirk Cousins might go, some of the players who could get traded. So definitely check that out as well. You can find Chris Whittingham at Chris Whittingham. You can find me at Ethan J. Skolnick. Thank you for listening. 